Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Otolia-Bed, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Valerie Wayne, editor of the new volume Women's Labour and the History of the Book in Early Modern England, published by Bloomsbury the Arden Shakespeare in 2020. Valerie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alexandra. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, well, we are delighted to have you. Valerie, it's a fascinating um, volume and, and I'm really, really excited to dig into it throughout our interview. But to begin, we always like to ask um, our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves and how the book really came about. Okay. Well, I'm a professor emerita from the University of Hawaii at Manoa in Honolulu, where I taught in the English department for 32 years. In 2010, I retired to to complete my Arden edition of Shakespeare's play Cymbeline, which took a very long time. Since that came out in 2017, I asked myself what I was most interested in, since I was no longer obligated to work in any particular direction any longer. And I turned to the growing field of book history because it combined my love for literature and history with the pleasure I take in old books. It's a remarkable feeling to work with books that are 400 years old, to touch their rag paper and leather bindings and look carefully at their title pages, which sometimes print the words we think are least important in the largest fonts. I'd been reading rare books since graduate school, but now a whole interdisciplinary field had opened up that focuses on the production and reception of the material book, and I really wanted to explore that more fully. So I applied for and was admitted to a seminar sponsored by the U.S.'s National Endowment for the Humanities called The Formation and Reformation of the Book, 1450 to 1650, that met at the Huntington Library in California in order to update myself on the scholarship in the field. Then I proposed a seminar for the annual meeting of the Shakespeare Association of America in 2018 called Women, Gender, and Book History. Those who signed up for that seminar were excellent scholars, and they wrote wonderful papers. Once I read them, I knew that a strong collection of essays would come from them. I'd edited two previous collections from SAA seminars, one in 1992 and the other in uh, 2009. So I knew how to do this, but I also welcomed the opportunity to build on that earlier experience. Thank you. It's always it's always nice to hear how kind of varying um, the experiences are with the Huntington, um, and I would love to hear more about that in the future. So, um, okay. you, you've already mentioned uh, kind of the different edited volumes that you've been involved in, but so what were your motivations specifically in in producing this edited volume on on women's labour in particular? Well, I wanted to get this first rate work out there because I hoped it would change the field broaden it to include more women, and also extend the kinds of questions that that were being asked in it. Um, I submitted the proposal to Bloomsbury, the publisher of My Cymbeline, and they assured me they would publish the book in paperback after 12 to 18 months. 
I knew their copy editing would be reliable, that they would produce a quality book and advertise it well. It seems to have, that seems to have happened because it found its way to you. And I've had a very good experience with Bloomsbury on both books. But I wanted to get the word out there in book history about what women had accomplished in the early modern period. I can certainly agree that it's going to contribute um, to change in the field. Um, I think one only really needs to scan through um, the contents page to feel that. But could you um, tell us a little bit about the types of scholars who were contributing to the volume and, and their, their particular quite diverse fields, um, as well as who you see as really being the audience of the volume? Well, most of the contributors are professors at American universities, and they range from untenured to associate to full professors. They're all, however, in English departments. Um, One is an independent scholar who just finished her English degree at Cambridge. One is retired as a reference librarian at the Folger Shakespeare Library. The British contributor, Helen Smith, is professor of Renaissance literature and head of the English department at the University of York. She wrote the most important monograph on this topic called Grossly Material Things, Women and Book Production in Early Modern England. And she also wrote the afterword to our collection. For readers of the book, we envision scholars and postgraduate students in uh, the fields of English, literary studies, and book history, along with early modern historians, like yourself. The audience will probably extend to undergraduates, since more and more courses at that level are including book history along with the study of literature. Now that so much of our reading experience has gone digital, old and rare books are becoming more interesting to college-age students. Maybe they've become more of a curiosity because they have endured so long as compelling material objects. General readers also seem surprised that women were engaged in printing and publishing books around the time that Shakespeare was writing his plays. So I hope the book will engage readers beyond the academy as well. And I can I can really see that um, being the case. And you touched on something that I, I hope we'll come back to later in the interview, which is this this overlap between um, practicing libraries, actually librarians, those involved mm-hmm. with the handling and engagement with actual books themselves, and those scholars who work on texts um, and book history. But before we go on to those uh, mm-hmm. kind of deeper questions, could you just for, for those who, who haven't read the book, just generally outline the, the structure and how the, the volume progresses through its chapters. Sure. The collection has three parts, making books, making texts, and marking books. Making books is about paper, publishers, and printers. Making texts is about authors and editors. And marking books concerns owners, readers, collectors, and annotators. As a whole, the book moves from the women who were responsible for the production of material books to those who wrote and edited them, and then on to those who owned and read them. Now, we usually think of books as originating with authors, but the collections organization implies that the publishers and printers who invested in books sometimes commissioned them um, uh, and sometimes commissioned them also had a major role in their creation. Because I think authors and publishers collaborate with one another, just as Bloomsbury and I collaborated on this collection. It wouldn't be this book with this title and these contributors were it not for the direction I received from the publisher and the readers they commissioned to assess it. And I think that's so true for so many early modern books. That's why this book begins with publishers 
um, and then moves on to authors. In which case, let's dive straight into some of those <laughs> chapters um, uh, because the, the, the structure is is incredibly compelling. Um, this this progression from making books um, to making text to marking books, um, I, I enjoyed it very much. But so we start with your own uh, written introduction to the book, which draws attention to how unusual um, the study of women's labor is in the field of book history, and you state something that. Reading, uh, sorry, writing and reading are crucial to women's labor in book history and both have been underestimated. Can I ask you to expand on this quite fundamental um, gender issue in the field of book history and what the recovery of women's participation in book culture in this particular volume has done to counteract some of the very long standing assumptions regarding women's involvement? We show that women were there that they were present and contributed to English book culture in the 16th and 17th centuries. For many people, that's new news. They collected rags from rubbish piles and begged for them door to door to be used to produce paper in the paper mills. They invested in books and worked in print shops to oversee compositors and pressmen. They appeared on title pages as authors and collaborators, co-authoring a romance such as the Arcadia, and writing poems as Isabella Whitney did. They inscribed their names in books. Over 600 women's names show up in English books over two centuries in the Folgers' collections. They were book collectors, like Frances Wolferston, who owned more than 200 books, including 10 of Shakespeare's plays and his two narrative poems, annotating them with her signature and adding plot summaries as well as recording their pages on their pages some playbooks that she lent to a kinsman. So women participated in early modern book culture in a range of ways. Since women have so often been written out of all kinds of history, they need to be written back in again in order to be seen now. That's what the contributors to this collection have accomplished for the book women who worked at this time and this place. Thank you, Valerie. That's a very, a very powerful way um, of putting that. And I think it is, it's, it's quite staggering the, the kind of level of, of shock and awe that people have that women are kind of engaged with book culture, um, especially on that um, more kind of financial production um, kind of basis. Mm-hmm. Um, people, I think it's not just with the case of books, but I think people are often astounded in this kind of early modern period that women are involved in a range of trades um, and not just as, as kind of traders, but on, on higher levels. Um, and I think that's something that the book does does very well is to, to highlight that issue. But so a key issue um, in recovering, so this recovery of women and women's labor, um, so not just regarding the, the book trade, but um, more generally in the early modern period and, and in England, is the lack of the source material um, available and the reality that women, as you say, have, have rarely been sufficiently recognized in not just today's kind of um, literature, but, but in the actual archival record. So could you um, explain to some of our listeners how or, or some of really the challenges that you faced in, in your own um, <clears throat> research, I'm thinking about your contribution here really, um, regarding the visibility of women and how you and, and maybe some of the other contributors used various methods or, or approaches in trying to recover female labor? Well, archival records often obscure the presence of women. Their birth names disappear into their husbands' names upon marriage. And when they marry again, they receive a new name, 
So the records don't show that they're the same person. Their husband's names usually appear on title pages, but often theirs do not. We do get glimpses of women in records of the stationer's company that regulated early modern English printing, and their names sometimes appear on title pages between their marriages, so those places offer us clues about where to find them. One instance of this is Jacqueline de Tweed-Vautrolier-Field, who probably traveled from France to England with her husband, Thomas Vautrolier. We know that she printed books while Thomas was in Scotland at, at different times in the 1580s, because the stationist company gave her permission to print in his absence. But when Thomas died in 1587, she was forbidden to print anymore because her husband's patents had expired, and as a foreigner, he was not a member of the company. They, they knew in the stationer's company what she was capable of, but they shut her down. Still, in 1588, she printed eight French and English editions of two pamphlets about the Spanish Armada that appear to have been authored and authorized by the Queen's Lord High Treasurer, William Cecil Lord Burley, because he needed to spread the news that the Spanish had failed to invade the country. The pamphlets countered the fake news that, the Spain, that Spain had been victorious, and they were designed to be distributed widely in France and England. Their title pages say they were, quote, imprinted at London by I. Vautrolier for Richard Field, 1588. Since the letter I was interchangeable with the letter J at the time, this imprint identified Jacqueline as the printer of those pamphlets. The publisher appeared there as Richard Field, an apprentice in the Vautrolier shop whom Jacqueline married several months later. In the 1590s, Field went on to print four editions of Shakespeare's first printed work, Venus and Adonis, as well as the first edition of his Rape of Lucrece. Jacqueline's name doesn't appear on any of those texts, but we do know she worked with Vautrolier and with Field in their print shop, so Jacqueline and Richard probably continued to work together. She had more experience in the book trade than he did, and he stood to benefit from her expertise. Because women's names have repeatedly been overwritten by men's at that time, we don't have any hard evidence that she had a role in printing those narrative poems. But based on what we do know, it seems reasonable to speculate that she did. And at the very least, it seems possible um, very possible, and before now, no one seems to even have raised that possibility. So there's one example, at least, of how we can find a woman in the archive and uh, posit her contributions to early modern bookmaking. And quite an astounding um, <laughs> example of, of scholarly ingenuity, that is. I mean, to, to, to be able to to trace through um, through language in that way. But if we look more broadly at at part one, um, so we move from from your introduction um, discussing you know, the, the volume more generally and, and Jacqueline Dutuis, um, and we move to, to what's called making books, paper, publisher, printers. Um, and it explores the activities of women in, in various areas of book production, which ranges from the rag women who you already mentioned who were um, involved in the production of paper to female stationers and printers and publishers. Could you give listeners who are perhaps unaware of this period or, or women's labor more generally 
an overview of the diversity of roles played by women in this period. And perhaps could you give a couple of examples that are explored in the chapters? Because they're really, it's such a rich tapestry that that you um, are kind of presenting in the volume. Sure. I'm happy to move you through most of the chapters in this section. And um, and then later on, I'll raise another one. Um, well, first come those itinerant rag women who collected rags off the streets or solicited them at the doors of homes to eke out a bare living. They became objects of suspicion and legal complaint, but they were also recorded in two anonymous plays. Heidi Craig provides a fascinating account of these women in the first essay after the introduction. And this has always been an essay that, that many readers have been very excited about. Then there were women publishers, over 50 of them in London between 1540 and 1640, as discussed by Alan Farmer and as recorded in his appendix. These, these women confronted the money, I'm sorry, these women fronted the money for purchasing paper, printing books, and selling them. So they wouldn't have been published without those women's investments. Then there are women printers like Jones, Sturgis, Kingston, Robinson, Orwin who printed more than 60 editions and whose shop exceeded the output of her three husbands. Sarah Neville computes a printer's output based on the number of edition sheets in a printed book and then develops an ingenious method for tracking the influence a woman printer had on her second and subsequent husbands. Then Martine Van Elk's essay compares English women with the many Dutch women who worked in the book trades And she includes an appendix of 58 women stationers who worked in 17th century Amsterdam. So we have rag women, we have publishers, we have printers, not only in London, but also in Amsterdam. Um, And we'll go on, I hope, to talk a little bit more about printers. Thank you, Valerie. And it's reading through those chapters, you really are taken aback by how women are driving in many respects. the, the kind of a British English bookscape at the time, also um, in, in the Dutch territories. But something that in this section and, and actually stretching throughout the volume that really struck me is how women, and we can possibly come back to, to your discussion of the, this, the interchanging of, of I and J, um, <laughs> is how women present and, and make themselves actually very visible in this early modern bookscape and their, their sense of agency. It feels quite driven. Um, could you outline some of the ways in which they they did this for, for those who, who haven't had a chance to read the book yet? I'd be happy to. In her essay on women printers, Erica Bookler, uh, and her essay is also in this first section, shows how three women printers recycled and altered their printer's devices in order to make their own marks on the printed texts. After her morning period was over, Joan Sturgis Kingston Robinson Orwin cut her husband's initials, T.O., for Thomas Orwin, out of his printer's device, Um, she did, Um, and she used it to print 17 more texts, usually under the name of the widow Orwin. Alice Bailey Charlwood Roberts Roberts put the widow Charlwood in a surprisingly large font on the title page of one one of her books, so you could hardly miss it. With these and other strategies, women printers showed that they wanted their work to be seen, and they really kind of flaunted it in in these ways. Alan Farmer's extensive research on publishers unearths a network of women widow stationers who collaborated with one another in the 1630s. 
The group he identifies includes printers Anne Griffin, Mary Dawson, and Elizabeth Perslow, and the booksellers Anne Bowler, Joyce Norton, Joan Mann, and three more. Widow printers were hiring widow booksellers to distribute volumes that printers had published, while widow booksellers were hiring widow printers to produce the editions the booksellers had decided to bring out. While many essays in the collection reveal collaboration between husbands and wives, Farmer shows widows in the book trade collaborating with one another in the early modern, in the in the uh, early seventeenth century. And it's 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 quite a an astounding chapter. Um, this one on widow <laughs> uh, widow publishers and printers, and in particular this 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 sense of um, coming together and and really. Um, uh, kind of aligning themselves in order to to kind of profit and, and do well by what they see as also a very gendered environment um, was something that I, I found very, very striking. Um, if we move then from from this um, first section on on making books, we then move to to what you call making texts. So this is authors and editors. And this section explores the work of Isabella Whitney, the Countess of Pembroke, and Catherine Lee Bates. Could you briefly for listeners just unpack their various and very, very different roles as authors and editors and why perhaps they've gone so unacknowledged um, in scholarship to date? Well, I've already mentioned Elizabeth Whitney. Um, Kirk Melnikoff shows that she consulted the books that were in the print shop of her publisher, Richard Jones, which gave her a library of London's newest print offerings to stimulate her own writing. She seems to have made very good use of them. And Isabella Whitney is one of the women authors who has now made it, I would say, into the canon of um, early modern literature. Um, It has taken us 40 years to uncover some of the many women who wrote as authors in that period. But even now, Mary Sidney, the Countess of Prembroke, is described as the muse dedicatee and patron of her brother, Philip Sidney's Arcadia, and sometimes as his reader, promoter, and editor, but not as his co-author. Sarah Wall Randall makes a very strong case for Pembroke's role as author and collaborator based on her interpretation of the 1593 preface to the reader in the Arcadia and Pembroke's role in that entire romance. Um, she really shifts the discussion about uh, Mary Sidney's role in relation to her brother's romance. Most of us also thought that only a handful of women edited Shakespeare's plays before 1950. But Molly Arne shows there were at least 65 women who edited his works for women, children, and working class readers by the middle of the last century. We overlooked those editions because they were not addressed to a more elite audience. But Yarn has done extensive work um, to identify other editors. This, I believe, was her Cambridge uh, dissertation, and it's probably on its way to a book. Her essay concerns Catherine Lee Bates, who edited student editions of The Merchant of Venice, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and As You Like It in the 1890s. So we have a woman poet working at her reading books at her publisher's bookstall, we have an elite woman collaborating with her brother, and we have women editors coming along in the 19th century um, who were writing, uh, who were editing texts for student audiences. 
that leads very nicely into, into something that I, I wanted to ask you about, which is in these chapters, it, it comes across very, very clearly how class factors into the ways um, and I guess forms in which women could participate in the production of and interaction with books. Could you expand on this a little bit, perhaps drawing on these these three um, very, very different experiences of women um, in, in the kind of early modern bookscape? I'd be happy to do that, Alexander, mm-hmm. because class has been an issue that, uh, that, <laughs> that I have uh, addressed in my work from its very beginning. The women discussed here range from unnamed ragwomen to two well-placed countesses with lots of hard-working women in between. The records of elite women and men are usually much better preserved than those from other classes, so it's no surprise that in recovering the histories of women, those with the most wealth and station most often come to light. But the contributors to this book have unearthed the stories of many non-elite women, including those who worked in print shops and bookshops. Most of these have been women of the middling sort, and most of their work in the book trade was far from glamorous. Print shops smelled of ink, urine, and lye, and many bookshops were in the same or nearby locations. Publishing was a risky business that required savvy decision-making. Isabella Whitney's family was of the minor gentry, but when she was fired from her position as a servant in London, she tried to earn money from her writing. Her poems suggest she had to leave the city because she couldn't support herself. Sustaining their living was even harder for the itinerant women who collected rags for producing paper. The kind of labor that women contributed to book history was very much a function of the class they were born into and the kind of work they ended up engaging in when they could find work at all. For some, precarity rather than security became the norm. So this book tries to explore a considerable range of women from widely differing social classes. And as I wrote that last sentence, I have to admit that that word precarity came up for me right now as we're dealing with um, the results of the pandemic and so many people who are dealing with the problems of unemployment and loss of income because of that. That sense of, of life as precarious, as uncertain, and that question of where your next meal or income check is coming from is one that we are living right now. But it's useful to be reminded that it's also one that many people lived 400 years ago and in between. <laughs> Thanks, Valerie. And it's, of course, the current circumstances that we are facing globally, I think, really put um, the perspective of history, um, you know, right at, at the front of what we're seeing. And and I think also speaking of precarity, it's something that you see in the book and also so now is how precarity is one thing when it's tied into with class, but it's also very, very tied into to gender and it's very, very tied mm-hmm. into to questions of race. Right. Um, and and I think that's that's that really does come through um through in the volume, and it feels, as you say, incredibly current. Um, but uh, it's it's very very interesting that you know so many of the books and so many of the authors and editors that are interviewed um, for the new book network, we really see those parallels. And even if they're not being made explicit, even if um, authors are not drawing those those lines between um, the past and now, it seems that we're we're really seeing a resurgence of, of history playing more of a kind of political social cultural role um in a more powerful sense um if that if that makes makes any sense but it certainly does yes thank you um 
if we move then to, to part three, so we've, we've talked a little bit about making texts and the authors and editors and how, how women factored into to that kind of role. We then move in, in part three to what you call marking books. So this is women as owners, as readers, collectors and annotators. So perhaps a, an area that's, that's slightly more um, uh, with regards to the literature that's already out there, slightly more developed in many um, respects. Um, but could you just give listeners a, 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 some examples of, of how women are interacting with books in these different roles as like owners and readers and, and annotators and, and why they did so in the particular ways that are addressed by the authors in these chapters? Well, as Helen Smith points out in her afterward, all three of the essays in this section illustrate the bonds that early modern women created through books and reading, how they gathered books and families together, took comfort in one another, and engaged in sharing, collecting, annotating, and copying books, which became a way, really, of extending the value of those books to others. Georgiana Ziegler has identified more than 500 books in the Folger Shakespeare Library that were once owned by over 600 women between 1500 and 1700, based upon the marks they made in those books. Many of those women are not otherwise known to us, and her guess is that most of them were of the middling sort. Elizabeth Kolkovich writes about Elizabeth Stanley Hastings, Countess of Huntington, who came from a highly literate family and was in dialogue with some of the best-known religious writers of her day. Hastings created five miscellanies to serve as devotional manuscripts, and she mentored other women in her community. She was also the addressee of poems by John Donne and John Fletcher. Laurie Humphrey Newcomb shows how Frances Wolferston shared her impressive collection of 200 books with her family and willed them to one son on the conditions that he share them with his siblings and keep all the books together, which they were kept together for quite a long time. Wolferston once owned the only copy that is now extant of the first edition of Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis. Its title page bears her customary inscription, Frances Wolferston her book. It's wonderful. That's something that should be on everyone's ex libris. <laughs> um, um, so this section, it, because of the the different ways which are explored of, of how women are engaging, um, often in quite physical ways with with books, um, could you? Maybe show us a little bit about how this section really is very important in, in demonstrating some of the, the approaches and methods and um, methodologies in, in recovering women's agency. So something that we already touched upon earlier, but could you outline some of the, the various ways in which the authors in this section um, and the types of, of places that they're finding evidence and how these contribute to, to our understanding of women's engagement with books? Well, all three of the essays in this section are based on archival work at major research libraries, the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Georgiana Ziegler did the painstaking work of compiling a list of the Folger's women-owned books. She and Martine Van Elk also have an open-access website called Early Modern Female Book Ownership. <coughs> Excuse me. That includes wonderful images and further information on those books. Elizabeth Kolkovich discovered the five Hastings manuscripts at the Huntington and worked with them at length. Sometimes researching a library's holdings online will produce gems like that, 
But at other times, you don't know what something is until you call it up and discover what you have in your hands. Laurie Newcomb has worked on Francis Wolferston's collection in a range of libraries, including the Bodleian and at her own institution, the University of Illinois. This kind of archival research is most productive if you're sufficiently familiar with the subject matter that you know what you're looking for. But sometimes the material itself poses so many questions that you have to seek elsewhere for the answers. And I have to say, at this moment in time, um, most, if not all, research libraries are closed. Um, So they have been very generous in making their resources available through um, digital databases. And those are assisting people in in the ongoing work. But those who... um, like me, would prefer to be touching um, rare books, um, really can't be doing that at this time at all. And it's interesting how history of the book as, you know, as a, as a subject which does rely so much on, on physicality and the physical books themselves is in many respects one of the most kind of digital and kind of digitally proficient um, fields. And there is so much out there. And I'm sure listeners all know, all know about the resources that are, that are available, but there really is a great wealth of, of um, kind of digital um, surrogates and digital projects and databases um, available for researchers to use. And I think it's, it's a wonderful kind of development of the field of, of book history that that is now available. Yes, I think that's true. And I think I think actually it is the growth in the availability of those resources um, in a digital form that is largely responsible for the growth of book history, even though um, the, the, the interest in book history is also fed by a desire to, to, to discover the particular pleasures of the material book. So there's, a, there's an interesting way in which those two things um, work collaboratively in order to foster this current interest in book history. Mm, absolutely. And the, there's this wonderful cyclical nature whereby the more we think about um, how we render books and and what they are and and what they mean to us digitally, we have to think more about what actually makes a book, what is a book, how do we read a book, how do we touch a book. Um, so it's 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 caught in this this never-ending feedback loop, which can only be yes. <laughs> beneficial. Yes. Um, so I wanted to just talk a little bit about the volume kind of more generally, um, moving on from, from these three individual sections. So it really gestures, um, at many instances towards the importance of addressing questions of race and also of sexuality in women's book history. Can you speculate? I mean, this is not the the drive behind the volume itself, but I think it's made very clear that this is this is perhaps where this um, direction of scholarship is going. So, could you speculate on how going forward these narratives might be integrated into the field, and and how you you can envision that happening, and perhaps by maybe even the types of scholars who you see as perhaps going there? Sure. Um, I I think you're right that the volume gestures in that direction, but it doesn't do much more than that. And I hope that that many people will be able to take that much further in the future. As I suggest in my introduction, we can't assume that all those who participated in the English book trade were white Europeans. And I ask what it means that books were sold in the city at the sign of the black boy and the Saracen's head and the Turk's head. The book trade was not at all disengaged from racial and religious discourses at the time. Um, And chances are 
there were a variety of people who were involved in it who were not white Europeans. We haven't recovered them yet. We have work to do to do that. In her afterward, Helen Smith identity identifies race and sexuality as areas we need to turn to in book history. Helen and I will lead a workshop, on um, a seminar rather, at the World Shakespeare Congress in Singapore in the summer of 2012, 2021, which is called New Directions in Book History. And these are two areas that particularly interest each of us. There is very important work going on right now in critical race studies, and some of it will help us ask and answer questions that connect race more directly to issues in book history. In my introduction, I mentioned um, Imtiaz Habib's book um, uh, about uh, blacks in the, in the archives. He's done an extensive job of studying the archives and found black people in um, early modern London. And although I tried to engage with his in appendix, which is hundreds of pages, um, I couldn't find anything there that connected pers- persons directly to book history. But I think it's important to go back to that index and work further with it, um, or that appendix and work further with it. Um, and there are many other people who are going to be showing us the way to other connections between uh, critical race studies and book history in the future. Jeff Maston has already shown us how to incorporate questions of sexuality into the field and we can build on his excellent work in the future as well. And it's it's such an important venture. And, and I mean, the work that you, you've mentioned is is really just such a fantastic contribution. But I mean, it's already is what is it was published almost a decade ago. Am I right? Um, yes, it's, and it's it's, and it's been available for a very very long time. It's been available, but it's been available in in a um, in a book that costs an astronomical amount of money. And um, I'm happy to see that it is now coming out in paperback in an affordable um, form um, in the next few months. Uh, it got trapped in in the transfer of publishers from Ashgate to Routledge, and um, <clears throat> and it's it's now I think being freed from its chains, and it's certainly about time. <laughs> Oh, well, that's that's very good to hear. But I mean, it, it's somewhat it's it says a little bit about the field in and of itself that we have one seminal work mm-hmm. um, really dealing with this this um, issue of, of race in early modern England with regards to, to book history. Um, and, you know, we're still we're still struggling to, to kind of keep up with that um, and well, to and, keep and the momentum going in many respects. And, and, and just to point out, I he he I don't think there's much in his book that necessarily relates to book history, but I think we need to come to terms with his archival research before we can say that, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are all kinds of other scholars, Ian Smith, um, Ayanna Thompson, um, Margot Hendricks, um, and still many, many others who are doing exciting work, um, uh, B.K. Adams, um, who are going to be showing us the way in the future. So continuing this kind of forward-looking um kind of perspective. I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts regarding how modern period and, and even contemporary perhaps archival and library practices have continued to exclude, I'm going to say women, but we could talk much more broadly about um, about whether we want to talk about class or race, but, but women from book history. So for example, by not recording uh, specific provenance information, that's I think always a very um, interesting 
uh, point. Um, and a concept that comes up frequently in the volume is that of responsible speculation, which I thought was a fabulous term. But I wonder if there's also a need for um, perhaps greater institutional responsibility. So not just responsible speculation on behalf of those who are working on these topics, but also institutions to kind of claim that greater responsibility. It's a bit of a provocative question, but um, I was curious to, to hear what you have to, to, to say about that. Well, I think it's a great point because, yes, there is a need for greater institutional responsibility in recording provenance and in dealing with women's names and identities. Georgiana Ziegler is helping the folder to do exactly that, cataloging women not only under their married names or, yeah, only under their maiden names can can cause all kinds of problems when they remarry because we lose track of them. We address this problem in our index to the collection by cross-indexing all instances of a woman's name to the entry to her birth name and recording there all the other names and titles she was known by. This becomes a way of establishing continuity in women's identities in the midst of their shifting signature signifiers. It may be frustrating for users to be sent to the maiden name of, say, Jacqueline Vautrelier if you've never heard of, du- her, of her as Dutuy before, but in the process, they discover that name along with her marriage to Richard Field. It would be really helpful if institutions could collectively arrive at better ways of recording women's work and help researchers locate them more reliably. Um, and this, of course, would apply to people of, um, <clears throat> of classes who are not in the elite as well. I'm not aware of too many attempts to do that, but I do hope they're underway. And I wondered if you know of any through your work on Sloan's manuscripts and at the British Museum. Mm, you've come to a very uh, positive, <laughs> positive kind of um, crossroads here. I mean, Sloan is a very um, difficult and exciting character in many, many respects. And and although we know so much about him and you know where elements of his collections came from, including his his books and his manuscripts, there are also such vast absences in his um in his recce kept you know quite uh, outstanding catalogues and things like that so um i'm currently working on so just i'll talk about my own work because you know that's that's what i know best but i and, and many other people who have worked on sloan are trying to to do exactly that to recover those um women those people from um um, global context from across the atlantic mm. who were seminal to creating his collection, um, but who have not been recorded by both himself and then the perpetuation of that absence by modern cataloging practices. So mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of um, digital approaches to this, um, which I really hope in the future will, you know, be based upon collections really interlinking. So using um, the semantic web and connecting uh, kind of ontologies. Um, there's a there's a wonderful project called Research Space at the British Museum, for example, that. Um, that works on uh, a different kind of hierarchy of knowledge in order to perhaps recover some of these individuals. So, I think it's it's a, it's it's kind of on everybody's lips right now as a, as a topic, and I really hope that that's where this will be going um, in the future. That sounds good enough about Sloan. Yeah, <laughs> we're here to talk about women, and we've we've got enough of of white men um, <laughs> like Sloan uh, in the world. We don't need to probably discuss them at length. So. Um, I realize we're taking up so much of your time, but before we we kind of uh, f- finish this this wonderful interview, I, I wanted to just return to your introduction, actually. Um, so we're coming full circle. 
Um, and I was really struck by your <clears throat> comment, and I'll quote here, that women's work in the composition, selection, collection, and annotation of books had an impact on what their contemporaries read and wrote and on the literary canon that was developing for later generations. Now, this connects to, and this is obviously where the intellectual history channel here, but this is, you know, a core question in intellectual history, um, namely, what is or should be in the canon? Um, and I was wondering if you could reflect on how the history of the book might contribute actually to a rethinking of that very canon, not just in its contents, but also in its creation. Um, I would I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Mm, that's a very challenging question. The canon has undergone some major changes in the last 40 years, from incorporating the work of women authors like Elizabeth Carey and Isabella Whitney, to questioning Shakespeare's exceptionalism and diversifying the authors of early modern drama, to recognizing the frequency of collaborative authorship and acknowledging the roles that imperialism, racism, and religious intolerance played in establishing the previous canon. In most instances, changes to the canon have reflected new research and writing that was being done in the field, and those changes were also affected by movements within the culture at large, such as feminism, post-structuralism, rethinking Britain's colonial past, and attending to racism and indigeneity. I cannot speak for Britain, but after the murder of George Floyd shocked people into an awareness of what Black people in the States have been experiencing for decades and for centuries, Americans seem readier than before to come to terms with the dual sins of our nation's founding in the genocide of Indigenous peoples and in slavery. That will take some very hard work, but it is long overdue. When we do that work, in book history and beyond book history, the way we look at old books and classic literature will change significantly, and the canon will change along with it. I already see that happening in the curricula of courses being taught this coming academic year and the attention being given to anti-racist pedagogy. I, I do dearly hope that those changes will grow and continue in the future. They need to in order for us to be responsible in our own work. And I think this volume, although as you know, we've we've talked about not dealing, uh, you know, explicitly with race. You know, I think its contribution very much ushers in that new um, kind of form of thinking um, about uh, not just uh, book mm. history, but but intellectual history, social history, um, and further. And I think everyone should probably go away and, and take a look at the volume to, to really understand and, and kind of rejig those foundations upon which um, we start thinking about society writ large. So we've covered the book and I'm so, so grateful to, to have had the opportunity to speak to you, Valerie. It's been, it's been incredibly enlightening. But before we let you go, could you just give us a glimpse um, into what you're currently working on? Well, I'm writing an essay on women in the book trade for the Routledge Encyclopedia of the Renaissance World. And as I mentioned, I'll be co-leading a seminar on new directions in book history at the World Shakespeare Congress in Singapore next summer, even if it's entirely online. Um, I also find myself in a mentoring role these days, responding to work by younger colleagues and reading proposals or manuscripts from presses. I don't honestly know what else lies ahead for me in the way of work. But then I didn't know in 2017 either until I suddenly plunged into book history. 
I'm very glad I took that plunge and hope to be swimming in these waters for a good while to come. Oh, Valerie, on that on that very positive note, I will say thank you. We look forward to, uh, to hearing more about um, your work in uh, Women's Labour book history in the future. And for all listeners, just uh, to repeat, the book is Women's Labour and the History of the Book in Early Modern England, published by Bloomsbury, The Arden Shakespeare in 2020. And I've been speaking with editor Valerie Wayne. Valerie, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure, Alexandra. Thank you very, very much.